the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Justin, happy almost Halloween. Happy almost Halloween, Lindsay. This is uh, always a bittersweet week for me because (laughs) I think the ramp up, the build up to Halloween through October is almost more uh, exciting for me than the actual last few days. Like once we get into like the 29th, close to the 30th, I start getting a little bit sad because, you know, it's almost over. This whole month leading up is always really gives me a reason to just, I I put all other movies aside and I just do horror movies for the whole month of October. We both love horror movies, um, but I do get into, you know, if we're doing specific movies for the podcast, I, when our picks of the week, sometimes that monopolizes a lot of my movie watching time. So every October we dedicate all horror movies for October. So that way we can keep doing the podcast and, and, and keep, heavy material come out while also getting to only watch horror movies. So it works out really great. Every October we do a theme. This year we've chosen uh, 40th anniversaries. So of course we kick things off with American Werewolf in London, followed by My Bloody Valentine. And now uh, for a grand finale, 40th year anniversary of the classic movie Evil Dead. You know, I've been a pretty big fan of Evil Dead for the longest time I want to say there was probably a point maybe like 20 years ago or something where I was, you know, near burnout because I had seen the movie so many times and I didn't watch it for a while and then I got back into it. And this movie, every time I watch it, I find a new appreciation for it. Um, these last few weeks, just like researching Sam Raimi and the making of Evil Dead, I've just gotten an even greater appreciation for Sam Raimi as a filmmaker, Bruce Campbell as an actor, and really just the level of dedication that all of these people put into making this movie and that 40 years later it's such a significant horror movie that we're still talking about it we just recently saw it in the theater for a 40th year anniversary that was uh, Grindhouse releasing put out and yeah I'm excited to get into Evil Dead Um, there's so much to talk about and I'm really really glad that we saved Evil Dead for the last movie in our series here yeah and so much to get into with evil dead it's a little overwhelming considering how beloved this film is but we're going to try to break it down for you starting from well before the conception of evil dead the inspiration behind creator sam raimi and how this is really a story about a journey of a lot of friends filmmaking friends from an early age we're going to go into the preville dead Justin likes that I say that a lot. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of the history there, going back all the way to high school, college years, and what brought us up to the making of Evil Dead. A lot of the aspects of during filming that were maybe a little bit more difficult than you might expect. And I don't really want to ruin anything that we're going to talk about, but we'll go as, as in-depth into maybe some things you know, maybe some things you don't. Of course, we'll talk about the special effects. We always love doing that. 
talking about the cast, I mean, Bruce Campbell. This is where Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi, this is where all of these people launched their careers. How this movie became the phenomenon that it is today, it wasn't an easy path. Maybe you grew up watching Evil Dead, maybe it's just something that you always knew, but it wasn't uh, such an easy journey for everyone involved. But for anyone who doesn't know this film, it certainly did develop into a phenomenon. Um, We'll hit upon the sequels, the remake, and basically just how this film became the giant entity um, that it still is today. 40 years later, this movie has made such an impact. And I gotta say, watching it, I have no idea how many times I've watched this movie in my life, but cramming it in these last couple weeks, I have developed such an appreciation for this film and not in a way that's just watching it for just as a film. There's just so much behind it. And if you love the idea of filmmaking, if it's something that is just kind of within you and you love uh, behind the scenes stories of films, Evil Dead is one of the greatest stories. I totally agree. I can't wait to get into that. After our Evil Dead discussion, um, we are keeping our picks of the week, uh, horror movie sort of related as much as we can keep them but uh we both stuck with sam raimi movies so not full-on horror i did raimi's the gift from 2000 which does have a lot of horror elements to it but is more of a murder mystery i think that that qualifies yeah for this episode and i did sam raimi's film dark man which had been a while since i had revisited that film and what a crazy fun ride it was yeah it'd been a while since i'd seen that too and after you said you were picking that one i I watched it one night, and that's a zany movie. There's a lot (laughs) going on. Yeah, it is. As always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into our first clip from Evil Dead, Lindsay, just can you give us a brief description, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Five friends travel to the Tennessee woods for a little weekend getaway in a remote cabin. Fairly quickly in, one realizes something is amiss, but doesn't tell the rest of the group. The hangout and party vibe that the group's hoping for really uh, doesn't happen so much as quickly in, the group becomes suspicious and a force draws them to look in the dark basement of this cabin. What's discovered is a book we come to know as the Necronomicon, whose text, when read aloud, awakens the dead and demon spirits. What follows is one by one, each friend is possessed, and the only way to stop the possession is to kill and dismember the possessed individual. And Ash, the only one who remains, is abused and tormented all the way until the end. Does he have to kill all of his friends? Will he even make it? Will he be possessed? It kind of doesn't even matter, because this wild ride, blood splattered of a film, is unlike anything of its time. Justin, I cannot wait to see what clip you're going to pick for this. I mean, is it going to be 15 minutes of like weird demon noises, maybe? It's always the challenge when doing (laughs) horror movies, because a lot of the movie is just people screaming or... (laughs) Maybe some gurgling for this one. There's a lot of gurgling. Well, speaking of blood gurgling, I'll see if I can find a (laughs) clip that has a little bit of dialogue in it. Um, See what I can come up with here. We'll go to a clip. We'll come back. We'll get into the evil dead. I don't think I can wait that long. 
You have to. We all have to. And then in the morning, we'll get in the car, and we'll take the bridge. And... Does she keep making those horrible noises? I don't know! Now, if you've listened to any of our episodes in the past, you know that we really do like to get into the history of how these movies get made. Um, We definitely like getting into our own uh, opinions and discussions of the movie, but it's always a lot of fun to research this stuff, find out what the trials, tribulations, challenges were to get some of these movies made, especially the more indie and low-budget films that didn't have the support of a studio. And Evil Dead very much is that movie. Uh, It was made for a very low budget by a bunch of kids from the ages of 21 to 23. And this group of friends um, really did achieve the American dream. You know, they had a goal in mind. They really wanted to make this a reality, make this a living. And they took their original idea, executed it, and went on into infamy with this movie because they were such a tight knit group of friends. And it's such a big part of this story. Um, this is probably one of the few episodes that'll go a little bit longer before we get into the actual making of evil dead, because it is a a very important part of, of the story of how this movie got made and how these friendships, uh, not only got them through the making of this movie, but have gone on to last 40 some years. Our story begins in the suburbs of Detroit with a group of high schoolers who became friends throughout their formative years, all of whom had giant hobby of filmmaking and were lucky enough to be able to make their own 8mm films. Primarily, we're going to focus on the relationship between Sam Raimi, Scott Spiegel, Bruce Campbell, John Cameron and Josh Becker. All of these guys made films in high school and worked on each other's films and really supported each other, even down to the point of, you know, showing each other their films in their basements and really trying to help out in every way possible. There's a lot of history here, especially with Sam Raimi, and learning about how he got interested in filmmaking. That was fascinating to me. I think he was fortunate enough to be able to have a camera of his own, or at least use his father's camera, but it was something that not many kids could have had, and especially if they did, you know, who's to say that that's even going to be something that you're interested in? But all of these guys came together through filmmaking and had such enthusiasm for filmmaking. Now, Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi, and Scott Spiegel really started to kind of form a friendship. I think that they they had some classes that crossed over in high school, but really uh, began to work on each other's films. And each one of them played different roles in uh, the filmmaking process and really added to them learning how to craft a film. And this is in the early days of, of, of learning what made a movie work. And with each 8mm film that they showed, they would give each other feedback and would learn to improve upon these films. Many of them stemmed out of comedy, and the Three Stooges were big amongst Campbell, Spiegel, and Raimi. 
And after so many of them had all of these, you know, eight millimeter films of various degrees of quality, they did form a group in high school called the Metropolitan Film Group and were able to start showing these films to other students. And it it wasn't just in their basement anymore and even started charging admission, which is something that's going to come into play a little bit later on. They even got one of these films on a local horror show uh, with a host named The Ghoul. One film that they had made, which was called Six Months to Live, actually aired on this local channel. And so that kind of made them realize, hey, maybe we could do a little bit more with this. And that has to be really exhilarating, especially in the late 70s. There weren't like multimedia classes in high school to be able to find a group of people who are enthusiastic as you were form a society, show each other films, learn from each other, crew on each other's movies. And that really was how it went for these guys um, throughout high school. After high school, they went their separate ways a little bit, though they would reunite time and time again to help each other out when they could crew on each other's movies. Bruce Campbell, who had been acting a lot in these movies and was the more handsome of the bunch, uh, he sort of felt like he wanted to lean more into acting And in 1977, he got a chance to do summer stock in theater for a summer in Detroit. And one great aspect of it is that every year they would have someone in the entertainment industry who had some notoriety. And that summer, it was Tom Smothers of the Smothers Brothers, who had a lot of acclaim in the 50s and 60s uh, in variety shows, late night talk shows, and singing, acting, comedy, and... Bruce Campbell sort of became his assistant, helped getting him dressed during rehearsals and for the shows, eventually showing Tom Smothers some of the Super 8 films that him and Ramey and company had done. Uh, Smothers really took a liking to Bruce Campbell um, at the end of that summer, even so much as to writing him a check for $500 saying, you know, put this toward your Super 8 films uh, whenever you get back home and are making more movies with your friends. And that really meant a lot to Bruce Campbell. That experience gave him a little bit more confidence. And so, you know, he did take that $500 and put it toward film stock. And uh, him and Ramey and, and company got back together again and made some more movies. And there was another good stroke of, of luck um, via connection through Bruce Campbell. His father had a connection to Vern Noble, who was a full-time commercial director in Detroit, who had worked a long time in Los Angeles, but had relocated to his hometown of Detroit. Bruce Campbell became a production assistant for him. For about a year, Bruce Campbell worked on about 40 to 50 commercials, really gaining a lot of experience, gaining a lot of uh, what happens on a professional set. Also, Vern Noble watched the Super 8 films that him and Ramey uh, made and gave them advice on where to put the camera, a little bit advice on editing and how to stage things. And this really helped out Ramey and Campbell because it gave them some, you know, real life advice and they were able to talk to somebody who, you know, had at least made one feature and was working consistently as a director. So the group split up again for a little bit. Ramey went on to Michigan State, where he joined his brother, Ivan, who later on in life would go on to help Raimi co-write Army of Darkness, Dark Man, and some of the Spider-Man movies. But Ivan's roommate at the time was Rob Tappert. Rob Tappert was a business major who knew Raimi as Ivan's younger brother, but who didn't really recognize his talent as a filmmaker just yet. But soon they would have a very, very close friendship and it would be Rob Tappert who would become instrumental in convincing Ramey that they should do something, make a move to launch themselves into real-life producer-directors. 
So Sam is palling around with, with his brother Ivan and roommate Rob, and everybody becomes pretty chummy, really good friends. I mean, of course, Ivan and Sam, brothers. But Sam realizes they've got a lot of things in common and suggests, hey, why don't we all make a movie together? So Ivan starts looking into student funding, and at the same time, Sam starts and becomes president of the Society of Creative Film at Michigan State. And this is where they make Happy Valley Kid. It's shown at school, and this is where where they revisit that old idea they used in high school of charging admission. And students show up. The film is running for quite a few weeks. Word is getting around. Happy Valley Kid was Raimi's first movie without Scott Spiegel and Bruce Campbell being actively involved in the entire production, but they both do appear in the film. That following summer, Raimi, Scott Spiegel, and Bruce Campbell re-team, though, for the next film of the bunch called It's Murder. By this point, everyone has started to hone all of their particular skills in filmmaking and have become more systematic in their process. And for all of you evil deadites out there, it is in It's Murder when the term fake shemping uh, comes up, and that is when the you have an actor who can't be there for when the the scene is being shot so someone doubles for that person but it is shot from behind just basically doubling for another actor but you come to know this as fake shemping in evil dead so in it's murder also this is where tom sullivan who does makeup and special effects for evil dead this is where tom sullivan is introduced to the group So we have all of these players who, from high school to college, were moving on, and everyone is really realizing that they've got a little bit of magic here. Now, It's Murder doesn't necessarily win over the student audience at Michigan State, but it doesn't mean that students on campus aren't seeing it. Ramey and Tappert found that students weren't laughing at a lot of the intended comedy in the movie. They did notice one particular point that Ramey and Tappert had put in where a stranger is hiding in someone's back seat and, you know, there was one scare in the movie. Well, that scare turned out to be really effective. Every time that scene came on, they noticed the audience jump and get scared. And it was there that Ramey first saw how you can manipulate a movie and scare an audience and get a visceral reaction from them. And so it's this initial scene in its murder that really sets the spark in Rob Tabbert and Sam Raimi to start coming up with the idea of doing a horror movie. And you would think for a guy who created one of the most memorable horror films in film history would be this huge, big lover of horror films, but it was actually the complete opposite. Sam Raimi wasn't a fan of horror movies, and he actually hadn't seen too many horror movies at all, but he was about to change all that. And through the help of his friend Scott Spiegel, who was a huge horror movie fan, recommending some movies, and through the coaxing of Rob Tabbert, um, suggesting that they should watch some horror movies, figure out what works, and utilize that to make their own. I absolutely adore the idea of them going to drive-ins and watching movies like Halloween um, and seeing how the audience reacts, where, what they like about it, where the scares are, what are the boring parts? When do people start flashing their lights? This is what they're taking in when they're seeing this. And like you said before, Justin, Raimi starts seeing how you can manipulate an audience. And so he and Rob Tappert are watching these films and thinking, what if we just cut out all of the boring stuff and really give the audience what they want? Really like just kind of go nuts with it and be the most extreme that you can be. And it was in a screening of Halloween that Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi attended, where Rob Tappert leaned over and said, 
you know, can you make a horror movie as good as this? And Sam Raimi said, no, I can't. Sam Raimi didn't realize that there were some good horror movies, that this was a horror movie that was done really, really well. But as Sam Raimi saw more and more bad horror movies, he realized, I can make something better than this. I can make something scarier than this. Then they set out to say, this is our goal. We're going to make a horror film. Rob Tappert, he was a business major. He came from more of a producer side, started researching Variety Magazine and finding out, hey, there's a handful of these movies that have been really successful that were made for a low budget. They were all horror movies, and they most of them were made by first-time directors. Uh, he cited Night of the Living Dead by George Romero, The Hills Have Eyes by Wes Craven, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Toby Hooper. These movies were all very effective. They turned a big profit, and Rob Tappert said, you know, if we can do something like this, if we can make a movie that's visceral, that really grabs the audience by the throat, and we can make it for really cheap, even if it's a failure, it's going to succeed more than if we tried to make a comedy or some other type of genre. And so there they made a decision, you know, we're going to research this, we're going to study horror films, and Raimi was going to write and direct. They were going to get Bruce Campbell to star in the thing, and Rob Tappert was going to produce it. And now Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi have a goal of what they want to do. At this point, Sam Raimi's taking a film course at Michigan State, and it's there that he makes two short films. One, it's a William Shakespeare movie where there's a little bit of gore. He's experimenting with camera movements, but ultimately the movie is pretty dull. But he also does clockwork, where a stranger is watching an actress through a window. He made the movie with his friend and horror buff Scott Spiegel. It was there that Raimi really started getting an idea of like how to make something suspenseful, how to build tension. He also had a friend, Tom Sullivan, once again help out with some special effects. And Clockwork would be the first of two warm-ups before going on to start Evil Dead. The second horror-themed short film would be Within the Woods. And Within the Woods is the training ground for Evil Dead. This is um, going to be the miniature version of what we later see in Evil Dead. Using elements from H.P. Lovecraft, and that being the Necronomicon, I think the original idea was like the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which they replaced that with Sumerian references. So... All of these ideas begin to germinate in Within the Woods. It also stars Bruce Campbell and Ellen Sandweiss, who is in Evil Dead, and was also a high school friend of all of these guys and had appeared in their Super 8 films from before. So she was kind of an old hand with these guys as well and just kind of made sense. So this film was the first full-out horror film. It took six days to shoot and on a budget of just over like $1,500. Full Super 8, Sam Raimi wrote it. And also Tom Sullivan comes back in for special effects makeup. We also have a pro lighting setup. And Raimi is also experimenting with camera speeds and also experimenting with sound usage, that being like slowing down things to sound creepier, that sort of thing. Raimi's style also starts to develop a little bit more. We've got swoops in with the cameras and also like gliding cameras through the woods that we later see with Evil Dead. And it's also the first introduction of the shaky cam before it was perfected. And I'm sure we'll get to the shaky cam later. But Sam Raimi is filming and just running through the woods. And along with that sense of style that we see with him, there's also the introduction of the fast pushes for the abrasive POVs that we get a face full of. So these are all things that we see in Evil Dead. This is just the shorter version of it. And Rob Tappert even said that in some ways, Within the Woods is scarier than Evil Dead because it's shorter and a little bit more effective in its scares. 
So when production wrapped, the film was edited and all put together, Tappert arranged for a pre-showing of Within the Woods to play before Rocky Horror Picture Show. It went over really well with audiences. I think that they weren't expecting this type of film to be shown, and people took notice. There was also one reviewer that said, this film has a lot of creative talent behind it. It's got to be honed and figured out, but there's really something special going on here. So this idea that Tappert and Raimi had for making a movie that was just full-on in-your-face, the audience just must be punished while watching this movie. All of this idea in Within the Woods is the breeding ground for Evil Dead. Now, we are giving you a lot of build-up before the making of Evil Dead, but there's a reason for that. Evil Dead is such a well-crafted movie, and Sam Raimi was so young when he made it, and it's easy to say, oh, well, he was just a natural-born talent. Some of that is true, but it takes a lot of practice and a lot of preparing, and that's something that these guys did quite a bit, making so many films, like dozens and dozens of Super 8 films over the last like seven or eight years, making two warm-up films for Evil Dead, they felt that they were ready to try to go after financers for a feature-length version of Within the Woods. And this is where Rob Tappert would come in most instrumental. Rob Tappert's family had a lawyer, Phil Gillis. Rob Tappert worked on him, showed him Within the Woods, said, here's what we want to do. We need financers. We need a substantial budget, even though it's low budget, to try to make as professional of a horror film as we can. Phil Gillis uh, saw some promise with Within the Woods, he knew Rob Tappert, he saw some talent in Sam Raimi, and so he started helping them put together a package that would help break down points on the movie to find investors who would own, you know, who would get percentage points, who would get profit after they got paid back if the movie ever did get made in go on to be a success. Now, this is pretty standard with low-budget movies at the time, independent films. It still is sort of to this day where you find some private investors, they sign a contract saying they may not ever get their money back, but maybe one day if their movie makes money, they'll get their money back plus a little bit extra for putting in an investment. And for the investors of Evil Dead, it was a successful story. They all got their money back plus a little bit extra. Sadly, that's usually not the case. Nonetheless, they were able to get enough financing to at least start production on Evil Dead. And at this point, Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell all sort of formed a partnership. They started Renaissance Pictures, which is going to be their production name that they would carry on for years to come. Now, at this point, they've got money, they've got investors, they have to get serious. There's no more messing around. They really need to make sure that they can pull this off. The first thing they've been shooting on Super 8, well, movies that show in theaters are on 35 millimeters, so they say, hey, we need to have this 8 millimeter blown up to 35 millimeter. We better do a test run. This already shows them taking that step into being more professional. They're not just going to willy-nilly go out and try to shoot a feature and then find out later that this blow-up isn't going to work. So they shoot a test roll on Super 8, they have it uh, processed and blown up to 35. They convince the theater to let them show their test film. Immediately, they realize they cannot shoot Evil Dead on Super 8. It's When it's blown up, it's washed out, it's grainy, you can barely see the image. So it's there that they realize they're going to have to get a 16mm camera. And that's the reason why uh, Evil Dead is shot on 16mm. So with all of this prep work and testing, and even though this group 
did not have all of their budget like behind them, it was time to get the ball rolling. So they needed to get the rest of the cast behind Bruce Campbell. I already said Ellen Sandweiss from Within the Woods was cast in this as Cheryl, and Betsy Baker plays Linda, Ash's girlfriend. All of these actors are good old Detroit folks. You got to dip back into the pool where you're from, right? And rounding out the cast playing Shelley was uh, Teresa Seiferth using the stage name Teresa Tilly and Rich DeManicor playing Scott. Both of these actors were part of the Screen Actors Guild, which mandated that there was a minimum pay scale for them. And Renaissance Pictures, these guys, they just couldn't afford to do that. So still wanting to be in the movie. Both Teresa and Rich changed their names to Sarah York and Hal Delrich. So if you're out there on IMDb land, that's why the names don't match. But guess what? SAG did find out about it and they both got fined. It's a pretty funny story, but you know what? I think those two are laughing all the way to the bank in the end. It was a really small pool of people who were auditioned for this. And I guess because of the description of the film, Campbell has said multiple times that a lot of the girls who auditioned showed up with their boyfriends because it sounded like it was going to be like some type of porno movie in the middle of the woods. Obviously, there's nothing of that nature in Evil Dead, but we've got our cast of five and it is time to go from Michigan down to Tennessee. So the group of youths that go into a secluded cabin in the woods seems uh, pretty much like a horror cliche, but it was pretty fresh at the time. Most of this idea of a group of people going out to somewhere was born out of the idea of it's easy to shoot low budget if you only have one location, and that was the intention of Evil Dead. And the original idea would be like, let's shoot this in Detroit. We can find a cabin in the woods on some property. Uh, The only problem being is that winter was well on its way. And up north in Detroit, it gets pretty cold with blistering cold winters. And so they thought, you know what, we're going to have to go somewhere where it doesn't get as cold during the winter. So they found a location eight hours south of Detroit in Morristown, Tennessee. It was here that they found the perfect rundown cabin with also an area where the the cast and crew could sleep. The lodging wasn't great, but it would do for a handful of people in their 20s. So Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi felt pretty good about the location that they found in Morristown. The only problem is, as luck would have it, it was the warmest winter in Detroit that year and a record-breaking cold winter in Morristown, Tennessee. But we'll get to that a little bit later. So in November of 1979, production on Evil Dead officially began. Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi drove down to the cabin from Detroit. It was in the next few days that the rest of the crew would join them. It was a small crew, including Tim Philo, a cinematographer, Josh Becker as a production assistant, and Steve Frankel, who was good at building things, and he would come in very handy. The first 10 days that they were there, they couldn't actually start shooting yet because of the conditions of the cabin. Cows that had been living in the pastures, had broken through the cabin and pretty much had run rampant into it, made it their bathroom. Uh, According to Campbell and Ramey, there was at least four inches of cow manure on the floors that had to be scraped off. So the first 10 days that were there, anybody who had a hand was rebuilding the inside of the cabin and scraping up cow manure. Also, there's a cellar in the movie Evil Dead that takes place. Well, there wasn't a cellar in the cabin They would have to shoot the cellar scenes later on in Detroit, but they had to give off the appearance that there was a cellar inside the cabin that had to be dug out. So whenever crew or cast members weren't doing anything, people would take turns digging the hole that they could put the base over to make it look like there was uh, stairs that went down underneath the cabin. And once they were able to get the cabin in good enough shape to start shooting, it was time to get the cast down to Tennessee and start actually filming The Evil Dead. 
But we'll stop there. We'll go to a clip. When we get back, we'll talk about... The hellish experience of shooting this darn thing? That's right. (laughs) It was pretty hellish. We'll also uh, talk about how all that hard work paid off, the release of The Evil Dead, this wacky franchise, as well as the remake. And the long-lasting legacy of this movie. Ash, I don't want to die. You're not going to leave me, are you, Ash? Are you? I don't want to die. You're not going to leave me here, are you? Are you, Ash? (laughs) Scotty, now come on, listen to me, for God's sake. Is there a way around the bridge? There's a way. The trail. But the trees, Ash. Hey, no. Don't you see, Ash? They're alive! Now, we've covered about 80-something movies on this podcast, and we've definitely talked about the trials and tribulations of many behind-the-scenes stories and difficulties of shooting. Um, One of, I think, the most brutal movie shoots that we talked about on here uh, was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where, you know, they had no budget, a small crew that are working in the brutal Texas heat and working with uh, foul-smelling uh, dead animals <laughs> and just just sounded like a awful awful shoot where everybody went near insane. I'd have to say a strong runner up for for that shoot has to be the shoot of Evil Dead. Um, they were actually dealing with the opposite um, brutal weather, the brutal cold. Um, like we said earlier, it was a a record uh, cold winter in Tennessee that year, and so they immediately found out that this was going to be a tough winter shoot. They didn't start shooting until um, really start ramping up shooting until the end of November. And by December, the temperatures were dropping. Um, it's very difficult to shoot um, in cold, especially with old camera equipment, cameras freezing up, uh, lenses fogging up from humidity and trying to get warm around the camera. And this was a very difficult shoot because Ramey, is known for his very stylish, eclectic camera work. And that's great when you have a big crew and, you know, you got to pull off some really difficult shot. But when you have very few people, very inexperienced actors who haven't done a lot of blocking mixed with throwing in special effects, makeup and fake blood, tempers can get pretty strained. And uh, you're also having to depend on everybody not to quit. This movie went on to do so much, uh, have so much acclaim, bring the actors and crew much more success after The Evil Dead. But you have to keep in mind at the time that they were filming this, some of them didn't even know that this movie would ever see the light of day. So at any given moment, someone could get pissed off and say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm walking out of here. I'm quitting. And something to the event of that happened a little bit. We'll get to that. But from what I've read, I didn't see too many uh, disturbing stories about what they were doing for the bathroom. I imagine they left that out, <laughs> but you can imagine uh, how rough things probably got. I think the omission kind of says it all. They just say, we didn't have any running water. And I mean, okay, so you're saying you had a bucket, but no one ever actually says yeah. it. it's inferred. You know, they used Cairo syrup uh, mixed with food dye to do a lot of the fake blood. And there's a lot of this, they had gallons and gallons of stuff 
very, very sticky stuff. So I can imagine, you know, you're trying to do all these things, work with your hands constantly when they're constantly being covered with sticky substance that you can't wash off with hot water immediately. That really kind of grosses me out when I'm just doing like, you know, a few daily tasks around the house. I can't imagine getting up and working uh, 15 to 20 hour days uh, trying to do an independent movie like that. Well, you know, they did have one thing in order to wash their hands of that Cairo syrup, and that was hot coffee. They were able to uh, have have water there to to make coffee to keep everybody going on these 16-hour shoots. And sometimes when you're, say, Sam Raimi and you got to operate the camera, that's uh, how you would wash your hands is with hot coffee. So that's cool. And Sam Raimi, for a while on the Evil Dead shoot, he did have a cinematographer, Tim Philo, um, but there was a, a point where they just shooting was taking way too long. Sam Raimi was doing so many setups for certain shots. They said, you know, they would go two or three days and only get one setup done. I think they were originally supposed to shoot for like six weeks. They ended up shooting for about three months, but not with everybody there. There was a point where they needed much more uh, shots with the actors, but uh, everyone had sort of reached their breaking point, And I can understand why. And keep in mind, these actors, they were being paid $100 a week. The crew was anywhere from like $35 to $40 a week. And in 1980, 79, you know, um, it's still not that much, let's just say, for the conditions in which you're being forced to endure, whether it's the cold or just being pushed to your limits of hours and hours of doing this. But in, in all of the stories, the horror stories I've heard of, like, Betsy Baker, after having Tom Sullivan's face cast put on her and then trying to take it off and pulling her eyelashes out, even hearing these things, you know, no one really has stories where they're just pissed about something. They're, they say that it was grueling and awful, and if anything, there's a certain sense of humor now when they talk about it, but Bruce Campbell has mentioned that after they were done filming and they would run into each other afterwards, it was this awkward, like, oh, hey, yeah, good to see ya. Like a really awkward encounter. Like we experienced something that was absolutely horrendous, but we're proud of what came out of it. And during the shooting of Evil Dead, um, it was really well documented by uh, independent filmmaker Josh Becker, who was friends with the crew and shot Super 8 films with them back in the day. He started out as a production assistant. Um, He claims that he eventually uh, moved on to lighting and was helping light a lot of the scenes that Raimi was shooting after they lost their director of photography. And he kept a journal which uh, was published, um, I think, originally in the late 90s that was included with the reissue of Evil Dead when it came out on VHS in a clamshell case. It's a very um, interesting read. I think Josh Becker was like 21 when he wrote this, and it's written, uh, sounds like it was a pretty bitter shoot. He seems like a pretty (laughs) cantankerous guy, if you've ever read any of uh, the stuff he's written before. He's got a bunch of essays and and a few books about uh, independent filmmaking that are really worth reading. But he pretty much said, and this is you know, a 21-year-old guy talking about a 20-year-old Sam Raimi saying, you know, he has style and if anything, you know, he's a very demanding director. He knows what he wants. Um, He's very inventive with the camera, but he tries to shoot so many different angles so that he has all these options that it becomes very demanding on the actors and is not always thinking about everybody's feelings. But again, Raimi is a 20-year-old kid and he's just trying to make the best movie he can 
um, he's trying to be creative and he's trying to push the envelope. And as far as being inventive, Ramey is employing filming techniques that were used many years before, like forced perspective, where you have something in the foreground, say Betsy Baker, who looks like she's getting slapped in the face by Ash, but actually Ash is many feet in front of her. But the way that we see it in the camera, it looks like he's making contact. So he's combining using these old school techniques, but also inventing ones of his own. I think most well known is the shaky cam technique, which they couldn't afford a steady cam at that time, which would be perfect for someone running through the woods, this evil force that is in Evil Dead. But in this case, Ramey has the camera mounted to a two by four and has two people on either side of it running through the woods. So it looks frenetic. It looks crazy. And that helps us understand what this massive entity is and also creates this entire thing that's used in so many films afterwards. One of my favorite shots that he does, and it seems almost like it's not even necessary, but it is insane to look at is where Ash is just being used and abused by this point later in the film. And Raimi does this over the head shot where he is actually hanging from the rafters above Bruce Campbell and shooting down over his face. And you don't even think about how that was shot because it is just kind of like perfect and beautiful, but also feels like this evil entity is coming down on Ash, the world is coming down on him. And so while he's coming up with these crazy and inventive and just visually stunning filming techniques, like I said, employing old school techniques, and another one is shooting in reverse. So you shoot something with the intention of running the film backwards. Most notably, most famously for Evil Dead is the scene in the woods with Ellen Sandweiss where the woods attack her and have her strapped up and it's a a pretty abusive scene one in which I think Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi wish that they had taken out the brief rape that happens and you might be being like why would the woods rape her it doesn't really make sense why Cheryl's gonna need to be abused this much but going back to the whole idea of how can we push this film to make it that much more abusive to the audience and punish the characters involved and poor Ellen Sandwich, she had no idea that this was going to be a rape scene it was done in post-production but man during this whole filming of this it really was just as abusive as it looks she got cut up her feet were bleeding and really just pushed to the brink. And that wasn't the only time. This happened many times with doing all of the makeup. Her character of Cheryl is the one in the basement and had all of her makeup and prosthetics on for longer than everyone else. And there's a a phrase that was coined during the Evil Dead production that is being pushed to the latex point, which is a reference to just one day Ellen had enough of it and she just said, I'm not friggin doing anything more you guys got enough of me and just walked off which is understandable you've been doing this that you've been pushed to the brink and Ellen Sandwise wasn't the only one Betsy Baker got hit in the head quite a few I mean there's a pretty abusive scene and I don't think that even though it was a styrofoam log that she was being hit with it was pretty severe and I know we mentioned the usage of caro syrup being sticky and all over the place I don't think it could really be overstated how terrible it was it was just caked on to where even the floor was turning gray with how much blood and just grossness had become part of this cabin and even Bruce Campbell being doused with as much 
Cairo syrup as he was, there were some points when he was taking off his clothes in the shower because he couldn't get them off of himself and even taking arm hair along with it. Like, I know that this might not, you can, you can say this and think, oh, it's just some Cairo syrup, just wash it off. No, these guys got beat up a little bit. And Tom Sullivan, who primarily did the special effects, he was only on location for three days, but mainly played a consultant role and prepared for some of the optical effects. And those optical effects, who Sullivan would partner with uh, Bart Pierce um, to make that happen, that is the giant climax of the film, is nothing short of a feat. It's the thing you're waiting for, for the entire length of the film. As far as Evil Dead goes with the abuse of its characters, of just this insanely violent bloodletting that is this film, when it gets to the stop-motion claymation everything that's happening in this i mean justin is your my brain's like blowing up that is the only way to say it just completely wild yeah it really is like especially the last like 15 20 minutes of this movie is (laughs) is quite a spectacle you think it's uh you know about ready to stop and then it just gets even more intense and ramps up especially the uh the sort of uh evil entity liquefying into um just goo and str- and then get, gets even stranger. Yeah, and uh, you don't expect this like yeah. fluid aspect to happen in the claymation. You know, and as low-fi as the special effects are, and, and certainly when you're watching it now, you can say, oh, that looks like milk or whatever it was that they were using or oatmeal coming out of still you know, gross. an arm. But it's still, it's still gross and it's still effective. And mixed with the opticals and the stop motion that they did, I think they really pulled it off. And now while Tom Sullivan was finishing up some of this optical and special effects work in Detroit, Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert were able to get um, their budget increased to get a professional editor. They had so much footage. I mean, just tons and tons of footage. They found that editor in New York, Edna Ruth Paul, being assisted by the Cohen brothers, Joe Cohen. And Sam Raimi went out to New York. Uh, he was there for like three months. Originally, they thought that the editing would take about 10 weeks. That actually doubled. And they spent about 20 weeks editing the film because they were still doing some reshoots. They were still getting some of these extra opticals. So they you know, would assemble the cut and then more footage would come in. But eventually they got a working edit that clocked in around 97 minutes. Though Raimi and Joe Cohen worked a little bit longer on the edit. They tightened it up more, lost about eight to 10 minutes um, just to make the movie move a little bit faster. And once they had a a working edit, they also had a four minute trailer cut together so that they could raise additional funds to get professional sound mixing, sound effects, and music to hopefully have a completed project. And it was this really tough process that Rob Tabbert talks about of like constantly trying to raise money. They do a little bit, they raise money, they get something else done. But it was easier to get uh, more funds um, toward uh, finishing the film once they actually were able to show people the edited movie and this trailer that they had cut together. And so the next aspect that they had to add on was sound and special effects. And they had been using, I believe, like this temporary track from Bernard Herrmann. But eventually Raimi hooked up with Joe LaDuca, who was the composer for Evil Dead. And this score, man, it is over the top and grating at times, but it is extremely effective and imaginative. Feels like an enhanced exploration of what is happening in Evil Dead in a lot of ways the score and effects are too much, even more so than the visuals that are happening. But it seemed like a great partnership in the creative brain that just was everything behind Evil Dead. 
And like many of Raimi's partnerships that have gone on forever, Joe LaDuca went on to score Evil Dead 2 as well as Army of Darkness and tons and tons of uh, television series that Raimi and Rob Tappert uh, produced in the 90s and into the 2000s. And I was lucky enough, a few years ago, they released Evil Dead in theaters with a reimagined score by Joe LaDuca and some of the over-the-top stuff you're talking about, mm-hmm. this was even more dramatic because oh, wow. at the time uh, he was doing the score, he didn't have a lot of time, they didn't have a lot of money, and so he um, didn't really get to do a lot of the more dr- dr- dramatic moments of the movie, mm-hmm. which he really wanted to emphasize. Um, not that Evil Dead is a real dramatic movie, but a lot of the stuff in the beginning and with Bruce Campbell, you know, giving his girlfriend the, oh, the yeah, necklace. Yeah. And so he sort of reimagined this different score. And that was really funny because it's like this sort of big, (laughs) bigger sounding score. It didn't quite fit the the grittiness and and cheapness looking of Evil Dead. But nonetheless, it was really cool to just not not only see Evil Dead, but to see it with this reimagined score, which I don't think that they ever released. I think this was just like a short run that they did. And then they, uh, I believe... Joe LaDuca released that score that's available to listen to, um, which is totally worth it. It's it's pretty interesting. LaDuca was a great choice. I think um, Ramey said he was really lucky that that uh, partnership started. And I think uh, he really took it to another level with the score with uh, Evil Dead 2 and Army Darkness once he had more money and was able to uh, bring in more players and add uh, more elements and strings and stuff to the compositions. So with all of these aspects finally coming together to make Book of the Dead happen, this ragtag crew is ready to premiere the film in Detroit, where they're all from, Michigan. It's time to bring this film back home and show everybody what they've been working on for so long and put literal blood, sweat, and tears into making this film possible. And this premiere was in 1981, which technically is why... This is 40-year anniversary of Evil Dead, but uh, most audiences didn't actually get to see the movie for two more long years. And luckily for everybody, this movie goes over supremely well. It is a hit with the audience, and just people are just hooting and hollering and very, very into it, which is very encouraging to this group of ragtag people that that put this together, made it all happen. And so what's the next step? It's time to sell this thing, man. That's what all of this has been about. They've tried to make Evil Dead a business and nobody wants to go back to the jobs that they had before. Sam Raimi is not going to go into his father's business. That's not what he's about. It is time to make it possible. So where do we turn? I think the first place that they try is New Line. At that point, Nightmare on Elm Street was not a thing. New Line was not blowing up. They were kind of in their beginning stages. And Evil Dead wasn't something that they were going for initially. But probably the most fortunate thing for the Book of the Dead crew was coming into contact with Irvin Shapiro, who was at that point responsible for making deals for George Romero, Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, before all of those guys really blew up. And when Shapiro saw this movie, I love this quote. It's so amazing. He says, well, it's your lucky day, boys. It's not gone with the wind, but I think I can make you some money. I mean, he knew what to do. And he also had a lot of connections in Europe. And he knew that a film like this wasn't going to take off immediately in the U.S., but in a European market, 
this is something that's going to fly, especially when you've got a lot of Italian horror films coming out, Hammer films, like people were into this. And even if it created a controversy, it was something that was going to be sellable. Maybe it was going to only show in, in 40 theaters in Italy and a few in Spain or be banned in another country, but it was going to gain some traction. And the biggest thing was Shapiro getting this film into the Con Film Festival, which he claims to have been an instrumental part in its beginning. And I, I mean, I, I've seen that in multiple places. So Irving Shapiro, man, he was like a godfather for the Evil Dead folks. A big thing that Irving Shapiro did also, having them change the title, um, he thought that Book of the Dead just sounded like you were going to have to read a bunch of stuff, and he didn't think it was a very good title. So he told them they should change the movie to Evil Dead. They thought it was silly, but they took his advice. They changed the movie to The Evil Dead, and that's the title it played at a Con Film Festival, where it was a big hit. It garnered a lot of good reviews, though the biggest review that they got, which it was a real big push, positive push for the movie, was that from Stephen King. Stephen King was at the Con Film Festival promoting creep show he caught a screening of evil dead and he wrote about it in twilight zone magazine um one of the one of his more famous quotes uh, this is the most ferociously original horror movie that i've seen um they were able to get that quote on the poster which really gave the movie some legitimacy can you imagine getting something that positive from someone like stephen king of course you were going to take that and run with it and i love that he when Raimi called him up and said can we use this he was like, yeah, of course you can. I love it. So much that I've read about Stephen King and his encouragement of young artists is just really cool. So with that behind them, this amazing product that they have and that it's successful in Europe and England, popularity starts to rise because it goes on video. But at the same time, it's being deemed obscene in other countries, which is great, works against it, but also helps create that word of mouth vibe. And with all of this happening over in Europe, the U.S. starts to take notice. New Line Cinema also takes notice and agrees to distribute it. Of course, with that, they have to submit the film to the MPAA. And unfortunately, the MPAA, you know, they've kind of been all over the map with what they deem to be suitable for whatever type of audience. It's kind of changed throughout the years. But yes, Evil Dead is a violent film, but it received the dreaded X rating at the time. So we're talking Clockwork Orange territory and Midnight Cowboy. I love that Midnight Cowboy gets an X rating. Anyway, it gets an X rating, which means that advertisers aren't really going to have anything to do with this. And you do need that in order to get your movie out there and get it into theaters. Some people are just going to turn away when they see an X. This is a porno. We don't want anything to do with it. But having agreed to distribute it, New Line goes ahead and releases the film as unrated. And so after nearly four long years of all the work that went into The Evil Dead, it was officially, officially released out into the world. And the rest, they say, is history. You know, the movie carried on a legacy. Uh, Sam Raimi, Evil Dead became his calling card. A lot of his a lot of his um, crew members, you know, got jobs in industry. Bruce Campbell was able to continue the work with Raimi for a while. Uh, Raimi did a studio film called Crime Wave that was written by the Coen brothers. He kept them in his camp 
and uh, that was uh, somewhat of a failure, but he was able to secure financing for a sequel to make Evil Dead 2. After the success of Evil Dead 2, he, he was able to secure a two-picture deal with Universal, which included Dark Man and Army of Darkness, to complete the Evil Dead trilogy, and uh, of course went on to do all the Spider-Man movies and become uh, one of the most successful directors in Hollywood. And even though he had all the success, Evil Dead kind of continued to be what people knew him from, what people loved the most. Uh, Raimi said in an interview that he would go to a lot of these comic book conventions and he would expect everybody to, you know, kind of discuss Spider-Man. But he said all the fans kept asking for were Evil Dead. We want more. We want more Evil Dead. We love Bruce Campbell. We love Ash. And so eventually um, all that clamoring from fans led to the television series Ash vs. Evil Dead, which ran for three seasons. But before that happened, before the Ash vs. Evil Dead TV series, uh, Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi, who had continued to produce tons and tons of horror films through their production company, Ghost House Pictures, uh, did team up with Bruce Campbell. And they, in 2013, they produced a reboot, a reimagining a recreation, whatever you want to place that title on. I don't know anymore, uh, you know, what to call these things when they when they start up a, a, a old movie with new actors and new ideas. But uh, we'll just call it a reboot, for lack of a better term. Uh, they rebooted Evil Dead in 2013. Fans were excited because Raimi Tappert and Campbell were behind it as producers. They used um, Raimi's original Evil Dead script as a as a jumping off point. Fide Alvarez was the director. He wrote and directed it. Uh, it was a huge success. Um, the Evil Dead reboot, I think, made more money at the box office than Raimi's uh, first five movies combined. <laughs> so they were really happy with that. Um, but though, um, like I said, fans still wanted Bruce as the... Uh, Ash Williams character and so that led to the uh, Ash versus Evil Dead series it's kind of wild you know like uh, while we've been researching this movie um, it is always kind of crazy to me when a movie has this longevity I mean there's so many movies that uh, are kind of cult hits but the fans aren't quite this feverish for the movies and Evil Dead has I think one of the strongest fan base and you know oh, a yeah. legion of fans uh, so much so that uh, we were lucky enough to both catch a documentary called hail to the deadites um, while we were researching this movie it's a great little documentary bruce campbell's in it tom sullivan is in it and seems like a really really great guy and seems to be uh on the fan circuit you know in these conventions really connecting with fans and signing autographs and you know, he always brings along a lot of his props from Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. It kind of really shows uh, how um, fans of movies can let the movie live on. You know, a lot of movies disappear and they just don't get shown a lot of love or people just kind of forget about them. But that Evil Dead continues to get shown in midnight showings and people still talk about it and they buy merchandise and it's continued to keep this movie alive and known for generations to come. And with this huge uprising, this cult following of horror fans and just movie lovers that Evil Dead has meant so much to them for years, it's it's something that they grew up with. To the actors involved, Teresa Tilly, Ellen Sandweiss, Betsy Baker, and Richard Demanincourt, it wasn't something that was on their radar. This was something that they did when they were so much younger and so many people in their lives didn't even know that they were in Evil Dead. The women in Evil Dead have continued on in the acting field, but they're 
flying under the radar for a lot of people. So when they started to realize that there was such a cult following behind this, they were kind of surprised. And all three of the women called each other and started talking about this and were like, maybe we should go to a convention or something. And they did. They go undercover, like not in disguise, let's say, but, you know, kind of not wanting to draw attention to themselves, hearing that there's fans, rabid fans out there, and were just blown away by the fan base and started thinking, hey, maybe we can start appearing at these conventions. And eventually they started doing appearances with Bruce Campbell, doing these live readings of Evil Dead and just really adding to the whole universe that is Evil Dead. It's something that's really pretty cool and great to see interviews of them, you know, 20, 30 years later talking about their experiences, something that they probably didn't want to do immediately after they were done with the film. But in hindsight, everyone has so many great stories. And and it's kind of fun to see people who are just normal soccer moms, you know, talking about this crazy thing that they did in their youth and, you know, talking about it now. It was really nice to run across so much footage and information on them getting involved. And to close this out, you know, you're probably asking us uh, if you're fans of the Evil Dead, why the hell are you guys barely mentioning Bruce Campbell here? (laughs) And the thing is, is we could spend an entire episode dedicated to Bruce Campbell, but Bruce Campbell really took the Ash Williams character to another level um, by continuing on with the Evil Dead series and Bruce Campbell just tirelessly going to conventions and doing Q&As. If you've ever been able to catch one of his Q&As, I've I've been to about five or six of them and they're just really entertaining. Um, You know, he kind of channels the Ash character a little bit and gets rough with fans by, you know, calling them out and (laughs) being rude and people just love it. You know, they eat it up and has continued to just endlessly do interviews about the making of Evil Dead even today. And really, you know, it's you would think that at this point in time, it would just be you wouldn't want to talk about it anymore. But he still offers, you know, stories and insight onto how um, into something that they did so, so many years ago. I love Bruce Campbell. He's an amazing guy, great actor, and really is like the the key element of what makes, I think, the Evil Dead series work. I got a confession for you, Justin. This might make me seem pretty lame, but I saw The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. starring Bruce Campbell uh, well before I saw Evil Dead. And it was because I was into X-Files. They were shown on the same night. It was when X-Files was on Fridays. But Briscoe County is what turned me on to Evil Dead. You know, I, th- I think that's uh, that's a path a lot of people that became Evil Dead fans took. Um, and, you know, I, I watched Briscoe County because I was awesome Bruce Campbell's in like <laughs> yeah. a new TV show. Yeah. But I think that was a crossover. Like a lot of people loved Evil Dead, got into Briscoe and vice versa. And, you know, it's a really good show. I actually just was watching it uh, yesterday. Um, I popped on a little bit of Briscoe County Jr. And uh, if you haven't seen that, highly recommend it. I think it's um, Bruce Campbell said that that was one of his, uh, that's still his favorite role that he's ever played. Oh, really? That's nice. Yeah, I loved that show. Oh, wow. Little did this crew of, of folks and friends from so long ago know that what they were making would turn into an entire universe in the horror genre. It is such an amazing story. We hope you've uh, enjoyed this journey with us, guys. Well, we'll close it out there. We'll come back with some final thoughts on Evil Dead, but we definitely should get into our picks of the week, which we kept on the Sam Raimi front. Um, I did the gift, Lindsay. 
You did Darkman. What can you tell me about that movie? Who is Darkman? I was excited to revisit Darkman because unlike so many people that like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, I'm not someone that's clamoring to see a superhero movie. But Darkman is a whole different animal, and it was where Sam Raimi dipped his toe into making a movie like this. Raimi obviously wanted this to be in the spirit of 30s and 40s superhero stories because while this film feels slick, the grit in it is heightened more than in contemporary superhero movies. And even though he's gone on to do, like I said, the Spider-Man re-envisionings, I love that Darkman was his first dive into this world. And I kind of use superhero lightly, or at least that's how I feel with Darkman. This story is like that of every great Avenger. It's extremely tragic. Raimi created this story in the truest sense of sparking an internal rage and sense of justice in a character. The main character we follow has a great movie name, Peyton Westlake, played by Liam Neeson, and he's a scientist working on perfecting synthetic skin for burn victims. What a thoughtful scientific endeavor and also happens to foreshadow what our protagonist will go through very soon in the movie. The story gets moving really quickly with Peyton's attorney girlfriend, Julie, played by our podcast favorite and Raimi pal, Frances McDormand. She discovers some incriminating evidence involving mafia bribes to the Los Angeles Zoning Commission. And after Julie opens her big trap to the wrong person and leaves said evidence in Peyton's possession, well, this is found out by these mafia dudes and an unknowing Peyton is brutally attacked, his lab is blown up, and it is assumed that Peyton has been blown up with it. But if that were true, we wouldn't even have a story. Peyton barely survives, having been flown and blown into the nearby water where he's found in a coma, brought to a hospital where he undergoes this crazy treatment which cuts off his nerves associated with feeling pain. Basically, the only way to survive these injuries is to not feel pain, as he is really nothing but exposed flesh and left unable to speak. This also means he can no longer feel anything, which adversely causes him to have advanced strength, but also destabilizes his mental facilities and causes this unimaginable, uncontrollable rage once he regains consciousness. And for you big movie nerds out there, since we talked about American Werewolf in London to kick off our Halloween movies, Jenny Agutter and John Landis show up in small parts in the hospital scene with Peyton. What this story is setting up is a ticking time bomb, right? So Peyton escapes from the hospital, attempts to make contact with Julie, who recoils in pure disgust. Peyton, you know, looks like a monster approaching her on a street corner. You really can't blame her. This somewhat superhero of a story of a tormented soul went through quite a few writers' hands, but began with Sam Raimi. Five writers, in fact, with Raimi's trusty older brother, the doctor at this point, Ivan Raimi, he chimed in for medical accuracy over Peyton's extremely burned body. While this story is focused, it feels as if it could have veered off in a ton of directions, and I kind of attribute that to having a few more writing hands in this one. The love story aspect with Julie is a great addition to the film that really feels like a throwback to classic films involving, you know, if love can overcome a hideous reality. It's tragic, devastatingly sad, and makes one truly empathize with Peyton. And it's also extra hurtful here because Julie is kind of responsible for Peyton becoming disfigured and losing himself to the anguish and acceptance of becoming Darkman. In addition to the story, you've got amazing effects, and Raimi does not skimp on that, although it's very much toned down from the likes of Evil Dead. Employing Tony Gardner from 1988's The Blob as the special effects man, the prosthetics and makeup are totally impressive, especially for 1989-90. 
some stop motion and skin melting too, which kicks off the audience knowing Darkman will not let you down in the effects department. How Liam Neeson is even under these prosthetics applied to his face is mind-blowing. It's grotesque, and you feel pain for this character. On top of that, the ethereal visions of a fragmented mind in constant conflict... There's like an anger switch that flips so many times. This is very effective, and that disjointed insanity has us following Peyton down this rabbit hole of revenge rage. There are a ton of intense moments throughout the film. Most noticeably is an insane helicopter sequence just straight up abusing Peyton in that kind of spirit of abusing Ash. Him hanging from a rope attached to a helicopter that's trying to shake him off in the middle of L.A. And Raimi even brings back that shaky camera style to make the audience super queasy. Runners up for great moments go to Ted Raimi's head sticking out of a manhole while in busy traffic. Love it. The extreme climax of the movie is pretty exhilarating. There's a lot of Raimi-style close-ups plus multiple finger-breaking moments. Who doesn't love that? A lot of vivid colors and those Dutch-style angles that Raimi is known for. And almost a cartoonish quality, too. There's twinges of humor, but overall the film is really bleak. I don't really laugh at it, but I could see how someone would think that there are twinges of humor. It's kind of in the same spirit, or it could be compared maybe a little bit to Batman 89, but the humor in Darkman is not at all like the same. I think there's a certain innocence to Batman compared to Darkman. And speaking of Batman, Danny Elfman did the score for this film, which is a completely fantastic choice um, and also something that you can depend on no matter how your movie is, is going to be put together. No matter what outside involvement the studio has in your picture, if you have a Danny Elfman score you're going to have a solid movie. And I did learn that there was some significant outside involvement. The studio hired an outside editor who didn't agree with Raimi's vision for the film and left in the middle of it, leaving Raimi and longtime friend and Evil Dead producer Rob Tappert feeling that the end result of the film was not at all what they had envisioned. It's always a bummer to hear that, especially when all we know is the end result of the film. But when all is said and done, this film was successful for Raimi's Renaissance Pictures and Universal. It served as an easy way for Raimi Amy's style to seep into mainstream films for his vision to get out there and to bring even more exposure to the Evil Dead series. The throwback nature to early science fiction combined with Raimi's incredibly unique style makes Darkman a film that is well-deserving of a rewatch or first-time viewing. It's certainly not Raimi's Spider-Man movies, but it was Raimi's first dip into it, and I really enjoyed this rewatch. I do want to know if Darkman's cat that he kind of starts living with when he takes over a warehouse. I want to know if that's one of the seven cats from Pet Cemetery because it makes sense time-wise. It would have been one of those cats. Certainly looks like one. So if anybody out there knows that answer, holla back at me because I, I, I need to know. I can tell you. Do you know about that cat and the reshoot that they did with that cat for Dark I Man? do, but I think our listeners need yeah, to know yeah, about this. Please. They, uh, <laughs> the, they did a test screening for Dark Man and when there's that big explosion, uh, the whole reason why they have the cat go into the warehouse was just a, a device to follow something into the warehouse to see what was going on. But uh, after the explosion and everything, they did a test screening and all the audiences were like, what happened to the cat? You know, did the cat die in the explosion? So they had to go back and just shoot a quick shot of a cat coming out that you see that it was safe because that's, uh, you know. People can, uh, you know, see a guy get uh, beaten and tortured, <laughs> you know, dumped in a vat of acid and thrown out a window. But uh, 
you can't let the cat die in the explosion. Did that cat make it? I gotta know. Yep. I can't. It, I'm the same way. I gotta know if it's the same cat from Pet yep. Cemetery. I mean, there were one. There were seven cats in that movie, but I gotta know. Yeah. All right, Justin, it's your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week. Well, my pick of the week was The Gift. It was the last sort of small movie that Sam Raimi made before he uh, spent nearly the next decade making all the Spider-Man movies. Sam Raimi did a, a pick of the week that I chose uh, a little while back called A Simple Plan, which was a small thriller and probably the most straightforward movie that Raimi had ever done. And he really enjoyed the experience. Uh, in an interview, Raimi said one of his biggest regrets of his career was not getting to direct one false move. Uh, he was friends with Billy Bob Thornton, and Billy Bob Thornton, uh, several years before he hit it big with Sling Blade, uh, had written uh, multiple scripts, one being One False Move, and Raimi really wanted to direct it. He thought it was one of the tightest uh, thrillers that he had ever read, and unfortunately, things didn't work out. He didn't get to direct the movie, but he did get the opportunity to work with Billy Bob Thornton again. Billy Bob Thornton, with his writing partner, Tom Epson, wrote the script to The Gift, Sam Raimi uh, really wanted to ramp up the tension with this movie. He uh, wanted to do another thriller, but though he was straightforward with a simple plan, you can see all the Raimi-ness in this movie, especially toward uh, the end of the movie. Um, There's shots in it that look uh, downright Evil Dead-ish. And um, it's a really, really uh, great movie. I don't want to spoil too much with this one because it is a murder mystery and I hadn't seen it in a while, so I didn't remember much and it was a real, real treat. Um, I highly recommend this one. It's a great ensemble cast and the lead being Kate Blanchett, who's so wonderful. She lives in a small town in Georgia. She's a single mother named Annie Wilson and she's raising her three kids. She does have a second sight or a clairvoyancy and some people in the town believe she's you know a rip-off artist because she makes uh humble earnings as a fortune teller in town also kind of in some ways as like a counselor you know she advises people there seems to be a lot of troubled people in this town and so that's how the movie is sort of set up but eventually one of the most affluent families in town their daughter goes missing the girl that goes missing's fiance is friends with uh Kate Blanchett's character so he comes to her and tries to get her help eventually she gives Uh, them enough information of what she can see through her clairvoyancy. Um, She sees that the woman is, is like underwater somewhere. So they find the body, they deem it a murder. And now she gets sort of caught up into this whole murder mystery and trying to, they're trying to track down the killer in this town. And there's several suspects Uh, from here. The movie gets really taught. Ramey really does a great job of bouncing back and forth between these characters. Uh, There's, absolutely some scares in this movie i mean a really really fantastic thriller uh this is one that um i don't really think that got a lot of notice it wasn't really a very big hit for ramey but again it shows that ramey whether he's you know using a 200 million dollar budget to do a big superhero movie he's also can you know like he did with the evil dead series take a low budget and make something equally entertaining and interesting and inventive with his camera work and his uh, style that I've grown to love uh, watching Raimi's movies. But The Gift is really great. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a great watch with the with a, a lot of twists and turns. Somehow this one also escaped me. I remember I worked at a video store when it was out and it was a super hot rental, but I never uh, actually got to watch it. Do you have this? Can I borrow it? I do, yeah. I'll I'll loan it to you. And uh, I didn't uh, mention the how many people are in this cast. It's just tons and tons of people. It's insane, yeah. But uh, one 
interesting uh, role being played by Keanu Reeves, who, you know, he always kind of plays the nice guy and he's become such a lovable icon in Hollywood, but he plays like the sort of wife beating bully that's real menacing and scary in this movie. And it's really, I don't know if it a hundred percent works because it's hard seeing him play that character. Like I don't quite believe it, but it's interesting nonetheless to go back and see him playing such a dark character. I like it when he, isn't playing someone that's nice because I th- I think he's really great at it. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to this watch. I'll, I'll loan it to you tonight. Those are our picks of the week: The Gift and Dark Man, both directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, let's keep on moving. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. Since the Deep Woods play such a huge part in our main feature, I figured we'd travel to where Evil Dead was filmed to see what I could dig up on Bill. This time, we're going to Tennessee, two counties over from Hamblin County, where the Evil Dead cabin used to stand, to the backwoods of Roan County, in the Cave Creek area, one lone cabin with one occupant named Felix and his beloved companion mule, both far removed from the nearest town. I'm talking about the setup for the 2009 film Get Low, starring Robert Duvall, Sissy Spacek, and Bill. This is a true enough story about an older, kind of elderly, certainly up there in age, mountain man living on the fringes of society. There's also an aura of mystery around him, as there was a fire 40 years prior wherein a woman was killed, and this, of course, leads to distant town folk conjuring up all these tall tales about him being some weirdo shut-in, violent, and probably a murderer. And to add to the complex mystery surrounding Felix, he decides that before he dies, sensing it'll be soonish wants to have his funeral while he's still alive. He even built his own coffin. For the most part, this is a true story, but parts have been crafted for movie-making and storytelling purposes, but this really did happen. Bill does not play the role of Felix, although that would have been pretty good, but rather he plays the town businessman who runs the funeral home and is uninterested in the tall tales surrounding this potential sale. If you're talking about a funeral, you're talking about death. Bill said of the film story. Someone that's facing death and anticipating it and living life as if he knows he's going to die. Now maybe the Evil Dead folks' anticipation of death in a remote cabin with demon spirits is a little different, but in comparing these films in my Murrayized brain, I really started to go dark with the similarities. Get Low involves a previous horrific incident and the unveiling of a secret. Now both main men in these films, Ash and Felix, have a revelation. Both have to succumb to the idea of death. Felix is accepting that one day soon he'll die and he wants to be prepared. Evil Dead's Ash realizes he's got to abandon everything he knows in order to survive an untimely death. Bill said of this waiting to die feeling, I don't think most people do live their life like they know they're going to die. We just deny it. And he's totally right. We do. Actor Bill Cobbs' character in Get Low said, We like to imagine good and bad, right and wrong, or miles apart. But the truth is, very often, they're all tangled up with each other. I don't necessarily think that there's a moral to this film, nor to Evil Dead, 
But if there's one conflict they share, it's that often the good and bad are intertwined, involving choices surrounding death. In Evil Dead, a non-demon-possessed person who kills another human, possessed or not, could be considered a monster. You know, that whole conundrum of do you kill and dismember your demon girlfriend or not. In Get Low, the town is forced to reconsider this idea of a monster they've imagined all these years. Was this mystery man in the woods responsible for killing a woman, or was this entire incident a traumatizing event in which Felix is still tormented by? We get to see this happen with a man who knows he's about to die, Bill said about Get Low. He's trying to amend the errors of his youth, and we all could do it. So I guess that's the lesson of the film. The awareness of the inevitability of death can change your life. And that's it. Bill gives us our through line between Evil Dead and Get Low. These films no one else would link except me via Bill Murray. And in these tiny Tennessee cabins, two counties apart, two stories of vastly different men, the inevitability of death can change your life holds true in both stories. And through the backwoods of Tennessee, we find our Murray moment. Oh yeah, hold on, one more. I have a Tennessee Bill Murray-related plea to anyone who might know this answer. In my research for this Murray moment, I came across something I couldn't answer, and I don't even think calling Bill Murray would help. Only one county over from Morristown, where Evil Dead was filmed, right outside Knoxville proper, there's a subdivision that's on Bill Murray Lane. And I contacted every city planning department office. I was transferred around, left messages. No one could tell me why the subdivision was named this. Sure, it's off of Murray Road, but none of the other streets off that main drag are named after people. I did some digging. The subdivision concept was conceived in the early 90s, and I thought, okay, maybe some local man died, but found no record of a Bill or William Murray passing away until many years after the street was named. One city official told me that it was probably the contractor's idea, but who really knows? Maybe there's not even a story behind it. But there's also a Bill Murray Road way across the state in Crockett County, and maybe there's no connection to our particular Murray brother, but this unanswered question is still nagging at me. So if you know the answer to this, have a theory, send me an email, maybe even live on Bill Murray Road, that would be pretty cool. But in the meantime, thanks for sticking with me through this Tennessee-heavy Murray moment. I really like the uh, leap and dedication you made for this Murray moment. (laughs) I've also never seen Get Low. I think that's one of the uh, few Bill Murray movies I've owned forever, and I still have never popped it in and given it a watch. Oh, it's well worth it. Yeah, it's really good. Sissy Spacek's wonderful. I mean, everybody in it is really great. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. As always, of course. Well, Lindsay, we're getting close to the end here. (laughs) What an epic adventure we've been on. It's been a a big (laughs) adventure. But um, before we close things out on Evil Dead, did you have any final last thoughts about uh, the production or anything related? I think that this story is worthy of sharing about the cabin itself in Morristown. Well, it wasn't the first cabin. We, we said that before. It wasn't the first cabin that was chosen. Um, this one was said to have a haunting. So where this cabin is located is in the middle of a hollow and happens to attract lightning. So it's pretty well known that lightning strikes happen all around this area during storms. The first strange incident happened when a builder was assembling the chimney and was struck by lightning and died. And he was putting like the final brick up as the story goes and got hit, died. And apparently that brick was still missing when they showed up to film Evil Dead. Now, You might think, okay, yeah, that's pretty weird. That could, I guess, cause a haunting if you believe in that. But the even weirder part, as told by Sam Raimi, there were three generations of women who moved into this house. Grandmother, mother, daughter. 
And one particular night, it was a real bad storm, and the daughter got scared, went into the grandmother's room, and found her dead. And then she went into her mother's room and found her dead and went just screaming and just crying in the middle of the storm to the nearest home that she could find and was taken in. I mean, a little girl taken in to to live with this family. And it was said that whenever a bad storm would roll through, that she was known to wander off into the woods, which is creepy by itself. And just, I mean, I can't imagine the the poor trauma. I mean, if this is a true story, the poor trauma of, of this girl and what she must have felt. And then to do an action like that, like a habitual weird action like that, that's strange. Um, but apparently during the filming of Evil Dead, someone showed up to the cabin during a storm and, you know, knocked and was like, have you seen Abigail? And people are like, who's Abigail? I have no idea what you're talking about. There's no Abigail here. And it was this girl. And she had wandered off in the middle of this storm and she couldn't be found. Who knows if this is true or not, or if this is some yarn that Sam Raimi's spinning. I don't think so because it's been told by other people but a week after they were done filming evil dead lightning apparently hit the cabin and burned it to the ground this is the story that sam raimi tells that other people tell you ask bruce campbell this question and he's like i don't know what you're talking about some yokels out there just getting drunk and set the place on fire so who knows what the true story is backwoods country there's a lot of yarns that are spun but I kind of want to believe that this place was haunted a little bit. It's a very, very creepy story. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And um, my final thought is about the cabin as well. Okay. Um, During the early 80s, it was a big thing to do time capsules. You know, you'd you'd take a lot of mementos or whatever from your your time and you'd bury them and then hopes that, you know, many, many years later in the future, people would dig them up and find them and, you know, say, oh, this is what life was like back, back then. And so the cast and crew of the Evil Dead did a time capsule, and they buried it in the fireplace of the cabin, but the cabin did burn down. Uh, I couldn't find out if the time capsule was ever uncovered, but um, there are uh, you know pretty big Evil Dead fans that drive out to Tennessee trying to track down where the cabin actually was. I think some people have like taken like remnants of pieces of stuff that's from out there um when you go on youtube you can find several people that document you know driving out there like a like a locations tour like trying to find out where um the cabin was though i have heard that the owners of that property in the area are uh, not friendly and they will <laughs> call the police on you and they are aware that people you know try to get on their property to find out where the evil dead was filmed i bet that would be pretty annoying after a while yeah yeah, yeah. So does this wrap up our whole dive into Evil Dead? It does. It wow. does. It wraps up our, Oof. you know, we still uh, we still got Halloween just around the corner. <laughs> yeah. um, but I do hope that uh, this October, you know, we've really been able to help with your Halloween spirit. I know, um, you know, Halloween can be a double-edged sword sometimes. You know, it's like you don't want to get dressed up. You don't want to get in the spirit. Uh, for us, you know, Halloween <laughs> is like our Christmas. So yeah. we like to celebrate the whole month, and we hope we've added a little bit of joy to your Halloween prep celebrations. And it's a fantastic time to watch the Evil Dead trilogy. And if that's something you want to do, it's uh, all three are on HBO Max right now if you have that. And 
it's really I, I like watching you know I like doing like all three at once yeah. in one sitting I don't get to do it very often um, but it is a lot of fun and they connect really really well so we hope you've enjoyed this episode happy Halloween to everybody um, if you haven't already please do follow us on social media we're on Facebook we're on Instagram we're on Twitter on our YouTube account uh, you can see all of our old episodes as well as on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. If you are on any platforms where you can rate and review, please give us a five-star rating if you think we're worthy. Uh, please leave us a review if you like the show, if you liked an episode. If you ever want to contact us for any reason, you can always reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Halloween, guys. 